This episode is brought to you by Progressive Insurance. Whether you love true crime or comedy, celebrity interviews or news, you call the shots on what's in your podcast queue. And guess what? Now you can call them on your auto insurance too with the Name Your Price tool from Progressive. It works just the way it sounds. You tell Progressive how much you want to pay for car insurance, and they'll show you coverage options that fit your budget. Get your quote today at Progressive.com to join the over 28 million drivers who trust Progressive. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Price and coverage match limited by state law. Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. I am Mike Petriello, a writer and editor for MLB.com. Joined as always by Matt Myers, MLB.com national content editor. We have a lot of fun stuff to get to today. We are going to start off by talking about how there are no days off in the first round of the playoffs and what that means. We're going to get to our three batter minimum where we have three very interesting topics to talk about. And then we will get to learning about a guy you don't know enough about. We each pick one and we have our closing rants. We also have a guest this week, Randy Wilkins, uh, an award winning filmmaker who recently has done some work with MLB that we're very excited to talk to. But first, our opener. There are no days off in the first three rounds of the playoffs. The wild card round this year, three games, all at the home park of the higher seeded team, no days off. The division series, five straight days if it goes five games. The LCS, seven straight days. That's because those two series are all in a bubble. They'll all be either in Texas or California. No travel, no days off, so much baseball. And Matt, I don't think people quite understand how important this is going to be for for pitching strategy, I think I kind of like this. We'll explain why, but but do you like this? I definitely like it because my biggest complaint in recent years has been that like the postseason format makes baseball in the postseason like a very different game yes. than the one you see in the regular season. You know, baseball is played one way, you know, six months, which is basically you know every day. You know, minimal days off. So like, and then you get the postseason where there's day off days off after like every two games, basically. And it makes it really easy for teams to rely on a very small group of pitchers, especially relief pitchers. And I'm excited to see how this is going to manifest itself in October because you won't have the situation where teams can play, you know, where, where teams can use their best pitchers, you know, their best relievers in, you know, 80% of games, right? Normally, because of the off days, you can basically, you in the previous years, you can use your best reliever in games one and two, no matter what. And then also games three, and then, if, you know, if it's three, four, five, three days in a row, you probably have to sit them in one of those games. Um, not necessarily, but you likely will. But that's not going to be the case anymore. Now you basically can only use them probably 50 to 60% of games as opposed to 80 to 90% of games. Yeah, I wrote about this last night and I dug up uh, what I thought was a pretty interesting example. In the 2018 National League Championship Series, Dodgers and Brewers, Milwaukee used Corey Knable six times in seven games. And he was really good, right? He struck out 10. He only allowed one run. He was a big part of how they got to seven games. And you can't really do that if you're playing seven games in a row. But he actually got six games, six times in seven games without once pitching three days in a row, which I think tells you something. Last year, or two years ago, actually, in 2018, if you look at the regular season, relievers pitched about 39% of innings in the regular season. And in the postseason that year, it was nearly 50% of innings, which I think, Matt, goes exactly to what you just said. It's a completely different kind of baseball. And as I wrote, I guess it comes down to, you know, what sort of postseason baseball you like. Like if you liked the Nationals last year, just rolling with Strasburg and Scherzer and Corbin. I mean, those three guys, 
through 60% of all postseason innings for the Nationals. Just those three dudes. Like, that's that's fine. Um, if you think fourth and fifth starters need to matter, as they do in the regular season, that's fine too. I, I think I prefer that. I also think that this is almost certain to be a one-year experiment because even if the expanded postseason sticks around, which we'll get to later, it's unlikely that we would continue to have this unless it's bubbled forever, which fingers crossed, it won't be. <laughs> I guess we don't know, but I sure hope um, it's not. So I think that's going to be a really interesting change that people aren't going to realize until we're in like game four and you don't have, you know, or all this Chapman pitching, you have Johnny Losaga, right? Well, I, and yes, and to your point though, I do think that like, I'm not even sure the Nationals are the best example because I think a team with elite starting pitching is going to also benefit from the 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 new format, right? Where you actually have starting pitchers who can give you maybe even, you know, six or seven innings in a playoff game, which is rare nowadays. So you don't have to go to like the dredges of your, the, of the, you know, the back of your bullpen. The teams that are really going to be penalized by this are the teams that I think that rely on like, or, or would in a normal postseason would rely on two or three relievers like the Brewers in 2018, where they had Corey Knebel and Josh Hader basically pitching in every game, right? Those are the teams that I think are going to, are going to suffer. The ones that really rely on like just a small group of relievers to give them two to three innings in literally every playoff game, every high, you know, two in every close playoff game. Like that's those are the teams that going are going to to um, suffer. It's like the, the, in the piece that you wrote, you talked about like you know the teams that with more than basically it's the teams with more than three solid starters that, that stand to to benefit the most, right? Yeah, it turns out, and I know this is a shockingly hot take. The Dodgers are going to be well positioned, and Cleveland will be well positioned. Because they've well, got I mean, the, several good although, the, although the Dodgers are now right, you know, Walker Buehler's got these blister issues. Um, Dustin May, it doesn't, it's not an arm issue, right? But he was hit by and he was just scratched from his start. He was supposed to pitch tonight. So wait, he's still he's still going to pitch today. He he just got scratched from being the starter. Okay, okay, fair enough. Um, but um, the the Buehler thing obviously merits watching, but it's a separate thing. But yes, the, the Dodgers are well positioned. The Indians, assuming they can survive, right now they're they're I want to say hanging on to the eighth seed, but because the, the because of the big drop off in the American League, but they're they they've lost seven straight, and it's not as seven straight as we record this. I should make it clear on uh, on Wednesday afternoon, but um, they're by no means a, a lock any, anymore. Well, I, I can't wait to see what it looks like. All right, let's uh, move on to our three batter minimum. We have three interesting topics to get to earlier this week. StatCast, that's us. We rolled out the infield outs above average metric, and that is basically our our season-long uh, defensive value metric for infielders. We've had outfielders up for a couple weeks, and infield data goes back to 2017 on this, but we hadn't put up 2020 data until last week. You will be shocked and surprised to know that Nolan Arenado is the most valuable infielder in baseball this year. I know you needed fancy satellites and radars and everything to know that, but he's very, very good. What I like about this list is if you look at the top 10, there are guys you expect, right? Arenado, everybody agrees, uh, is fantastic. Francisco Lindor is up there. He's great. Trevor Story is up there. He's somehow underrated, I think, but still great. The guy who was tied for number two, I found this fascinating. Isaiah Kiner Falefa of Texas. And he's really interesting because last year he was mostly a catcher. Actually, for the last two years, he was mostly a catcher. And it should be noted, not a very good one. He was drafted as a middle infielder. He converted to catcher in 2016 in double A in hopes of making the majors, uh, which he did. But over the last two years of 18 and 19, he was a, a net negative behind the plate, you know, minus 11 framing runs saved. And that's just from framing. It wasn't really very good. 
but he was playing all around the infield. And in a short sample in 2018, he popped up as being a pretty good third baseman. And in a short sample in 2019, uh, only 25 games, he showed up as being a top 10 player last year in the infield. And so far this year, he is elite. And I, I take that as validation, I guess, because I remember looking at these small sample numbers from two years ago from last year and saying, well, that's interesting, but you know, he's not playing there that much. He's also a catcher. I don't know if that's just like a couple of plays propping this up. And now I think he might actually be like one of the five best defensive third baseman in baseball. And I don't think most people would put him up there on name value with Arenado and Chapman and guys like that. So I think this is cool from a Texas team that's you know not very good. Uh, now I have someone else to pay attention to there besides for Joey Gallo. I like that. Yeah, but I'm not. I, if I'm not mistaken, he was a guy that a couple of years ago they were kind of hoping to turn into sort of like a new version of a super utility player, wasn't it? Like he was going to like not just be a utility guy, but also be able to catch. So almost have like a you know a guy who could play like three infield positions and also catch. So that it would be like you know taking sort of the what we now kind of call the Zobrist, the Ben Zobrist role to like a new level by also being able to take innings behind the plate. Whereas most teams don't want to carry a third catcher. He would kind of be someone who could be the third catcher and give uh, Texas a strategic edge in, in that way. So it's definitely a surprise to see him on the top of the leaderboard. He's also hitting kind of okay this year. I'm not sure, you know, again, we're talking about 46 games um, that he's played in. So I, I wouldn't want to put too much stock in it, but like based on the way he's played this year, He's um, been a really valuable player, hitting 319, 363, 404 with, as you said, you know, elite elite defense at uh, at third base. So for the the Texas season that has been, um, I think, kindly call a disappointment. Um, Very kindly, I guess one of <laughs> one of the uh, one of the, uh, the the few silver linings. The other thing that jumped out to me looking at. Um, three and four on this list again you know fourth on the list Fernando Tatis Jr which you know we talked about him in a recent podcast how he's improved on defense and what a big part of that his value is there he's you know he's not just an offensive dynamo but ahead of him on the list tied with um Kiner Falefa is Jay Cronenworth another guy we talked about recently on this on this podcast Cronenworth is getting a lot of you know pub for probably being the National League Rock, Rookie of the Year because of how well he hits but it turns out he may also be an elite defensive second baseman as well and you know the 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 we talk a lot about the left side of the Rockies infield with Story and Arenado being so great on offense and defense well we need to start talking about the middle of the Padres infield as of this year looking to be far and away the best in uh in in baseball on both sides of the ball I'm laughing because you're talking about the middle of the Padres infield whereas they're highly paid corner infielders, Manny Machado and Eric Hosmer have like what eight ish gold gloves between them. <laughs> I mean, Hosmer's metrics have never, ever matched up with that. Uh, Machado's have, but I, I think as he's, as he's aged a little bit, he's gone from, you know, excellent to, to good, right. Which is not necessarily a knock last year. The Padres infield, I believe had the worst outs above average, either worst or second worst. And now they are top five. I think a lot of that is a credit to Tatis. Um, but also Cronenworth. All right, topic number two. We at MLB.com recently did a poll um, of our writers for AL MVP. And I guess I was a little surprised to see Mike Trout at the top of it. I mean, that's what I always want to see. But I I guess because the Angels have collapsed so hard this year, uh, I sort of didn't know if he'd make it. And I'm not actually sure I agree with this one. But uh, where are you on Trout as number one here? Um, I... 
I mean, he's still the best player, but like, yeah, I was surprised. I was very surprised to see him atop the the leaderboard in our poll. Um, you know, and it normally, like, I'm not necessarily someone who believes that a team needs to be good for the player on that team to win MVP. I see it as an individual award. That said, I do think the MVP performance should help tell the story of that baseball season. So even in past years where maybe the Angels weren't very good, Trout's dominance was still a story of like the full season, right? Like it was like, okay, Trout is still this amazing player. You know, he's approaching 40-40, you know, whatever, 450 OBP, all these like, you know, just incredible stats, like a jaw-dropping stat lines, right? But this year, as good as he's been, he's been, he's basically been what he usually is, right? He's like second league at homers. His OBP is a little down, but he's still slugging like 640. Like he's Trout. But like the story of like he's nowhere near like in the, he's not even in the discussion of like the story of the, this season and it's it's changed obviously the narrative changes in a shortened season but like this year like no one's talking about really Mike Trout the way they normally do because the Angels are such an afterthought and there's all this like these fantastic storylines in the American League so I well you know it was our it was our reporters who did the poll and this was also like you know a week like now it's like a, a week ago that we did it and it can change really fast in a short in a in a short season, but I, I, I kind of hope he does not win MVP for, for that reason. Yeah, I, I agree with you. I don't care at all about the team's record. I think it's pretty clear that one player in baseball cannot make a team good or bad, but I do think that this year is the first year people have maybe come around to the fact that his defense is not as great as the reputation would suggest. Um, we've talked about that before and it's something I want to get back to uh, in, a, in a future podcast. What's I guess there's a couple of things that are interesting to me. I've seen a lot of talk about Tim Anderson as a potential MVP, and I'm willing to buy it, but not because he's hitting 377. Um, it's because he's actually like an objectively good hitter this year. If I sort by weighted runs created plus, he is tied with Tim with uh, with Nelson Cruz at 178, 78% better than average. And Nelson Cruz is a DH. Now, I don't think Tim Anderson is like a great defensive shortstop. I think he's fine, um, but I think that's enough to get him in the conversation more than the batting average, more than the excitement of the White Sox. We're going to get to the White Sox more in a second, but I do want to throw this out there. I know a lot of people hate the idea of a pitcher winning MVP. You know, it's happened a couple of times. Verlander won it. uh, Kershaw won it. Is this the year to think about Shane Bieber winning it? Now, my personal opinion on this is that a pitcher can win MVP if two things have to happen. First of all, He's got to be without question, no doubt whatsoever, the best pitcher in the league, right? If there's even a question of if someone else is a better pitcher, then certainly he's not the MVP. I'm pretty sure Bieber's going to win the Cy Young uh, unanimously. It's difficult for me to see a situation unless he starts getting lit up where that doesn't happen. The second thing is there can't be like a position player who's having, you know, a monstrous historic year. I'm talking like Bryce Harper, 2015. Um, most Mike Trout years, you know, Mookie Betts two years ago, right? Like if you're having a year that good, it's hard for me to put a pitcher uh, above them. Obviously, as you said, there's a lot of guys having really good years, but I don't think I'm looking at anybody and saying like, uh, oh my God, this guy's having a Babe Ruth year. And the other argument people like to say is, well, the pitcher only pitches every couple of days and a position player plays every day. That's true. If you were to look at Shane Bieber this year, he has faced, uh, and I had it in front of me and I lost it, 200 and something batters i wish i had it in front of me but uh the point here is that he has had more batters faced than any hitter has had plate appearances so i know that doesn't include defensive chances but fine i think that you can kind of throw that out like he's not playing every day but he's doing a whole lot more on those days i'm not sure i'd vote for him but i'm not willing to throw him out of the conversation yet 
Agreed. And I think that's what happened with our, our kind of our, our polls. You kind of see the way like people kind of got split. Whereas like the people who weren't trout voters, it was like, you know, with Bieber, there's some people who don't want to vote for a pitcher. So that kind of like, the, you know, he gets hurt by the fact that like some people will just like either not vote for him at all or put him lower on their fictional ballot. Same thing with someone like Nelson Cruz, right? A lot of people don't want to vote for DH. So like he's hurt by that. And then what often happens with teams that are really good and kind of surprise people is even the people who are like, oh, I want to sort of like pick a player on like the best team or the upstart team that kind of surprised us, you get a bit of a split vote where people are voting for Tim Anderson and Jose Abreu and even Luis Robert, although he's slumped a little bit. But in our vote, for example, Tim Anderson only got one first place vote. Jose Abreu got three. But Anderson finished higher than him when you counted in second, third, fourth, and fifth place votes. So um, I think that if the season were to end today, especially with the, the ridiculous hot streak that Tim Anderson has been on, and I agree with you, I've I've always sort of been a bit of a Tim Anderson skeptic, and I'm sort of now becoming a believer, and I give him a ton of credit for the way he's really established himself. Um, and um, I think Anderson would win it if the season ended today, but there's still like, you know, 10 more days in the season, and in a short season, the narrative can change um, quickly. And as you alluded to, let's speaking of the narrative, um, let's shift to our batter number three and our three batter minimum, the Chicago White Sox as a team. Um I like to toot my own horn and say that I did pick them. I picked them to win the division. You did. Um, you did. I didn't. I didn't expect this. I didn't expect them to be the position as the number one seed, in the American League, with ten days left in the season. And now, like, you know, it looked like they were maybe just beating up on the bad teams, but the last couple of days they beat the Twins, and they're kind of like main rivals in the AL Central right now, and looked very good doing it. And I know it's only a couple of games, but like. They do look pretty good. What, what's your kind of take on, on the White Sox? How how good are they? Well, right now, I think every White Sox fan hates me because I tweeted out the other day. Uh, I guess these are updated numbers now. They are 21 and three against three bad teams, right? Pittsburgh, KC and Detroit. And even with the wins over the Twins, they are 11 and 13 against everybody else. Now, that's not their fault. I mean, you play who you play, and certainly Cleveland and uh, Minnesota also get to play Kansas City and Detroit and Pittsburgh, and they haven't beaten up on them. I I found that more of a, a notable oddity than it is like, I don't think they're good because I do think they're good. You know, they have a, a run differential of plus 83, and I think not only the Dodgers are better. I would note that they have a tough run at the end of the season here. So uh, they are in the midst of a series with the Twins. They have to go to Cincinnati. They have to go to Cleveland. And they end with three against the Cubs. So I think that's going to tell us a little bit more about how good they are. I think at the beginning of the season, I said I was very in on their lineup, right? I was very excited to see their lineup. Um, I also said I totally hated the Nomar Mazzara trade, and I'm feeling pretty justified by that because he's been awful. He does not yet have a home run, not one. And I said I wasn't so sure about the pitching because I said Giolito loved him last year. But, you know, I needed to see him do it for more than just a couple of months. And he has. He's been very good. Um, I've never been a big Dallas Keuchel fan, but he's been pretty good. So that's on me. Um, I'm not sure about anybody behind him. Like, Ronaldo Lopez is not good. Dylan Cease has a 320 ERA, which I think is the single most misleading stat in baseball right now. I think every ERA estimator has him at like five uh, or six. Although I'll say, I really like Dane Dunning. He is another guy they got in the same Giolito trade. Um, and he's looked pretty good. So... Am I in on the White Sox being the best team in the American League? I'd probably still take the Rays. Um, but the fact that I'm like shaking my hands and thinking about it, I guess, tells you a little something about how good they actually are. Right. 
And yeah, to your point about beating up on bad teams, people often point that out. I think that's like that's just what good teams do. Like you should be given. Like, while I understand why people sort of point that out, I'm also of the belief of like, well, that's what you're supposed to do. I always go back to the 1998 Yankees, widely considered the best team of like you know recent history, you know, and they were won 114 games and tore through the playoffs and won the World Series that year against the um, expansion Rays and the then just awful Royals. They went 21 and one, outscoring them. I'm doing the math in my head here. 138 to 44. Um, so you know, that's what good teams do, right? So credit to the um, White Sox for beating up on these, you know, the the, the, the what they used to call the second division clubs, and now they're now they're about to about 500 versus everyone else, which is still not great. But um, in you know, I think like this is. I'm I'm so excited to see them in the postseason. I you know I'm sort of like uh, the the Padres have gotten so much attention for being like oh this is like the most exciting young team in baseball. Um, I'm kind of I think that the the White Sox are, are are right there with them in terms of just like the young talent that they have on their team and seeing every night you're going to see like you know they're just a dynamic team like the players are like exciting and have like la- you know just like loud tools like multi dimensional players huge power like great throwing arms like every you see a little bit of everything with that with that club and what's also impressive about them is like some of their guys are having kind of disappointing seasons i mean i don't i don't think of mazar as being very good but he's been even worse than i think that you would have anticipated um and then (laughs) has been you know not (laughs) what i I said i was low on mazar i don't know how he could have underperformed my expectations (laughs) But but he has he's well, he's, he's been pretty he's been he's been even worse. But even like Encarnacion has has been just like you know okay no not like probably less been 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 below expectations. So I guess my point is that like they've been this good despite the fact that like you look at their team and it's not like everyone is is blowing their their projection out of the water. Yeah, well, I, I guess the one guy who is a little bit is James McCann, who I sort of thought was a fluke last year, and I think they did too because they went out and gave all that money to Yasmani Grandal. Uh, and he's actually been fantastic. Um, I don't know how it's possible. We've gotten through an entire White Sox conversation and not mentioned Luis Robert, who is probably the American League rookie of the year. But I, I think you did hit on something important there, right? When you think about the playoffs, are they the best team? Probably not. Like, are they as good as the Dodgers? No. Are they as good as the full strength Yankees? Probably not. Uh, are they exactly the kind of team I want to watch in the playoffs? Yes. Like, very much so, yes. Like, if we were to think about, you know, television broadcasters and, and I guess Fox is the World Series, right? Will they be stoked about a White Sox Padres World Series? Probably not. Would I be stoked about it? Yes, that would be amazingly fun. Like I want that. And I, I think that's that's part of why I'm interested in the White Sox, because even if other teams are better, um, they're more fun. Like I enjoy watching the White Sox more than I enjoy watching the Yankees, the Astros, like most other teams. And I, it- I think that's that's what we want. I mean, it'd be a tough series. I mean, it's a sort of a tough series to market from the sense that both clubs have small fan bases. But if you wanted to market like, hey, here are players who play baseball in a way that like these like, you know, like these are not your, you know, these are not your grandfather's players. Like this is like these guys are like just insanely. The players on both those teams are just insanely talented in ways that like I think really reflect well on modern baseball players, you know, especially position players on both those teams. I think the, 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 you know, the Padres for, as an example, just probably have a little more in terms of, of pitching, but um, especially after the um, Clevenger trade, but um, in terms of just like the types of position players you're going to see, 
um, those two teams have like the, the most like dynamic, the most dynamic um, lineups, I think. Yeah. And if the season ended today, uh, the first round playoff matchup would be White Sox and Cleveland, which would certainly be uh, a nice capper. But uh, as Matt said, Cleveland may yet find themselves bounced if they can't figure out a way to win the game. All right, we're going to take a quick break. We will be right back with our guest, Randy Wilkins, an an Emmy award-winning filmmaker uh, and also Yankee writer and podcast. I'm excited to talk to you. The most luxurious possession, the richest treasure anybody has, is his personal dignity. If I had a room jammed with trophies, awards, and citations and a child of mine came into the room and asked what I had done in defense of those fighting, and I had to tell that child I had kept quiet, that I had been timid, I would have to mark myself a total failure in the whole business of living. I cannot say I haven't made while our country drives full speed ahead to a deeper rift between men and women of varying colors, speeds along a course towards more and more racism. Life is not a spectator sport. If you're going to spend your whole life in the grandstand just watching what goes on, in my opinion, you're wasting your life. Until every child can have an equal opportunity in youth and manhood. Until hunger is not only immoral, but illegal. Until hatred is recognized as a disease, a scourge, an epidemic, and treated as such. Until racism and sexism are conquered. Until that day, Jackie Robinson and no one else can say he hasn't made. There's not an American in this country free until every one of us is free. The voice you just heard was Mookie Betts of the Los Angeles Dodgers, and that video was posted on August 28th. Uh, It is called For Us to Remember. That was Jackie Robinson Day this year. And that video was directed by Randy Wilkins, who is uh, kind enough to join us for a few minutes here. Randy is many things. He is an Emmy award-winning filmmaker. He's been an editor on a lot of Spike Lee movies. He is the director of this video, as I said. Also a Yankee podcaster uh, and writer at the blog Views from 314 Feet. Uh, Randy, thank you, first of all, for for joining us. I would love to ask you, I guess, so many things about how this this move, this uh, ad that you made here came into being. Um, I know that earlier this year, after the murder of George Floyd, you had a Twitter thread um, that was pretty critical of the league. And I think that kind of took off and got you a, a lot of notice. And I, I was wanting to ask you about that. First of all, when people criticize like that, I feel like it's taken as well. I don't like baseball, but I took it as the opposite. It's that you love baseball and you want to see it improve. Is that an accurate viewpoint? It is accurate. Uh, first, thanks for having me. It's a great honor and pleasure to, to join you guys. So thank you for having me. Um, yeah, that that Twitter thread really came from a love and passion for the game. It's something that um, has always been a part of my life. I played baseball. Um, it means a, a great deal to me. I, I always say that the two most important things outside of my family are uh, film and baseball. So um, that Twitter thread really came from just a, a long time frustration with with racism in the game from my perspective. Um, there were um, instances when I played, especially in college, where as a lone black player on an all-white team, I, I definitely felt like there were some situations that um, race played a part um, in the way that I was treated or, or just the overall uh, dynamics of the team. And uh, when Major League Baseball was slow to respond to 
the George George Floyd murder, um, I just I just felt like it was something that I finally needed to get off my chest. Um, it wasn't something that I intended to get attention for. I didn't think I would get the notice of so many people, including MLB. It was it was really for myself. It was really just kind of a cathartic process for feelings that I held in for a long time. And uh, yeah, it, it led to a lot of people paying attention to it, including Major League Baseball. And instead of um, looking at me in a negative light, they, they wanted to get some more of my feelings and were looking to potentially collaborate together to, to start changing the messaging of, of the league and, and start addressing things in a particular manner. And I'm, I'm very thankful for that and um, appreciative of the relationship that I have now that was born from this Twitter threat. How did the, um, the concept for the, the film come about and, and how did uh, Mookie Betts end up getting involved? Well, there was a project that MLB's marketing team wanted to do for opening day that um, didn't get the green light. So um, in those conversations, there was there wanted to be an emphasis on the activism of the, the current players in the league and also recognizing the protests that have been going on across the country um, since uh, George Floyd's murder and Breonna Taylor and Ahmaud Arbery. So um, when that didn't work out, they approached me about Jackie Robinson Day and, and wanted to highlight his activism post-playing career. And that was something and that was a part of that was a part of Jackie's story that I often felt was neglected. Um, as we all know, the, the main emphasis is mainly on his breaking the color barrier. And obviously, that's such a tremendous moment in American history. But there was way more to Jackie than just that moment. Um, and a lot of that involved his his activism and, and commitment to the black community, both for um, economic sustainability and, and civil rights as a whole. So MLB's marketing team and I were definitely aligned on wanting to tell a different uh, story regarding Jackie. And um, there wasn't that much time to put it together, so we couldn't really film anything, but that probably worked out better because then I wanted to introduce some of the protests that have been going on um, in current times and uh, also highlight the players and, and their activism as well. So um, we were all kind of in alignment of, of what we wanted to, to tell and, and how we wanted to tell it. And then uh, just went off and, and made it, made it happen. Was, was Mookie Betts your first choice to do the voiceover for this? Uh, yeah. Mookie was definitely my first choice. There was the, the connections in my mind between Mookie and Jackie are, are so clear and um, both represent, a historic franchise with the Dodgers and both um, impactful black baseball players. Um, I, I really feel like the the lineage of Jackie is, is seen through Mookie, even though he's been with the organization for only a couple months. Um, Mookie obviously got his big extension, so he's, he's planning his roots with that franchise for presumably the rest of his career. And I, I think that everything that's right about the Dodgers and Major League Baseball um, is represented through both Jackie and and Mookie. So that was he was by far at the top of my list. We had other people that were Plan Bs, but it made too much sense to to have Mookie be a part of it. I'm just curious about the process of how that works. So you, I guess, pitched it to the league, like, "Hey, I really want Mookie Betts to do this." And then, what did they put you in contact with his agent? I mean, did you have phone calls with with him directly saying, "Hey, this is what I'm interested in doing"? Like, how does that look? Well, there's a 
there's um, a couple of people that work for MLB's marketing team that focused on the talent side. So they already have relationships with the players and the agents. So they took, they took the first steps to, to do the first initial um, reach out and gauge Mookie's interest. Um, it was both Mookie and his agent Ed Cerullo. Um, they were, they were a part of the conversations. And once it got to the point where they, they were interested in potentially being a part of it, then I spoke, um, I spoke to Ed, um, obviously Mookie's playing. So he has, uh, some other things to be focusing on. So, um, I had a great conversation with Ed. Um, I let him know that we were trying to, um, be open and honest about Jackie's legacy as a, as an activist and, and put more spot more of a spotlight on the work that he and the other uh present day players are doing and um you know I just they they had a couple questions and they wanted to to cure my vision and um have a better understanding of how I wanted to approach it the biggest thing for them was making it clear that these were Jackie's words and not Mookie's um so that was something that was important to to make clear from their end and obviously we had no problem doing that um so yeah MLB's marketing team reached out to them first and then I answered any questions that Mookie and his agent had prior to him agreeing to uh, do the voiceover for it. You've gotten a, it seems like uh, at least based on Twitter, there was a lot of really good response to um, uh, the, the film. What, like what, any, did anything surprise you or people that reached out to you that, that sort of surprised you? Um, honestly, I'm, I'm more surprised that there weren't, there wasn't more brushback. Um, I, I think that including Kurt Flood and including a shot of Black Trans Lives Matter when we when we were putting it together, those were two moments where I was a little concerned, especially the Black, Black Trans Lives Matter shot, where I felt like there was going to be um, the the whole like stick to sports crowd uh, making their voices heard. But at least from my experience, we, I didn't really come across a lot of that. Um, I, I felt confident in the piece. I thought it was a beautiful piece when we were putting it together. So um, I, I felt that we were going to get a nice emotional and positive response to it. But I, I was surprised that um, there wasn't as much um, negative energy directed towards it when it when it finally came out. That is uh, nice to hear. And I guess given the nature of yeah. social media, <laughs> somewhat stunning. <laughs> that's, that's great. I, I did want to ask the, the nature of filmmaking in a pandemic i assume you didn't go and get a whole bunch of studio uh, people together in a, in a studio and i know you have a lot of editing experience um but do you have like a, a team of people who you work with who are spread out or how do you put something like that together in this situation yeah everything was remote like i said earlier we weren't just because of the timeline we weren't able to uh throw a production together which was probably better given everything that's going on and, and being mindful of people's uh health and safety so uh, Elgin Ward-Daly uh, was the writer for the piece who crafted the story out of Jackie's words from his autobiography. Um, Alex Cirillo was my producer who brought everything together and, and, and organized everything to make this work. Um, my editor, Sophie Marshall, I think she was in Michigan or something. So um, yeah, we had to use something called Frame.io to put everything on, a, on an accessible uh, site where everybody can look at cuts and look at the dailies in real time. So um, my composer was in LA, Jonathan Altman, who wrote the uh, beautiful piece of music. Uh, Etienne Charles, who played the trumpet, um, I believe was in Florida. 
So it's just a lot of work of coordinating and get, getting everybody's schedules together. But these are all people that um, I trust and and really love their story, storytelling abilities and, and talents. But um, it was a little challenging, but it, w- it was also nice to see it come together. Um, and, and technology in 2020 definitely allowed this to happen. So um, people were safe um, in their own spaces and we were able to, to successfully put this together. Randy, I want to get your take on on the, the current state of the Yankees because I know you're very passionate about that. But before, before we do, uh, I'm curious: is there like um, you know a, a baseball documentary like that you dream of making, like an untold story that like in your mind is like this is the story um, that like you wish you could make? Kurt Flood. Okay, one hundred percent. I mean, I, I know that um, he was a, a big voice in Ken Burns' documentary, and I, I know that there's some been there's been some other films, but um yeah i feel like there's there's one story that just has a a global impact that there are just too many people that don't know his story and don't know his influence in modern day sports and um for me that he's someone that has a tremendous story an interesting story beyond just his his fight for free agency but just um his life after playing um was very interesting and, and something I would love to get into. So for me, it would be Kurt Flood. I mean, there's there's so many directions that it can go in. And, you know, speaking of the Yankees, Garrett Cole, um, giving him a shout out when he's when he had his press conference with the Yankees really stood out to me because it seems so, so rare for a modern day athlete to, to recognize Kurt's impact on on their livelihoods, really. So um, that would probably be at the top of my list. For for our, maybe some of our um, our listeners who are not as much of a student of uh, baseball history, want to give a brief overview of why Kurt Flood is so important. So Kurt Flood, um, inspired by the civil rights movement in the '60s, basically challenged the reserve clause that um, made it difficult for uh, players to have their own agency. So there there wasn't really the concept of free agency prior to Kurt Flood challenging this reserve clause. Um, teams could trade and release and um, pretty much do whatever they wanted with the with the players without the the players themselves having some um, ability to influence where they ended up and and what teams they could play for and and negotiating their salaries. So Kurt Flood, um, along with uh, Marvin Miller, they they uh, had a legal challenge of the reserve clause that went all the way up to the Supreme Court and. He doesn't win, but there were a couple of players a couple of years later who were able to use um, Kurt knocking that door down to, to eventually create free agency. So um, that's his story in a nutshell. Well, Randy, in addition to, to being a, a filmmaker, you are also a Yankees podcaster uh, slash blogger at the, the site Views from 314 Feet. I know you are uh, a native of the Bronx, so I'm going to go out on a limb and assume you've grown up a Yankee fan. And I think you are just a couple years older than me, which means you probably lived through some bad baseball in the 80s and then we're around for the the glory days right in the 90s and I, i'm curious what took you from you know being i guess just a fan to doing something a little more active with it writing and podcasting yeah i, I yeah the the 80s were bad outside of uh don mattingly and ricky and dave winfield they yeah they were they were the dark days of my yankee fandom even the early 90s were even worse so um yeah, it's nice to see the Yankees be a, a prominent franchise for so long. I know there's younger Yankees fans that have no idea what I'm talking about. But <laughs> there was a time when they were they were awful. Um, 
So I, uh, so there was a, a blog that, that um, sort of some of your audience might be familiar with, River Rap Blues. Um, and I was a big follower of theirs and, and loved their work. And um, a couple years ago, um, I was asked to write um, a guest post during Black History Month just um, kind of giving my thoughts on being a, a black baseball fan, ba- black baseball fan um, during this time and, and kind of my impressions of watching a game where the, the uh, percentage of black players in the game was, was dwindling. Um, and then I kind of caught the bug and, and said, you know, if, if I ever had an opportunity to, to write some more, I would love to do it. And then eventually um, River Ave Blues folded. Uh, Mike Exisa, who did incredible work at the site, um, decided to shut it down. And there were two writers, um, well, three writers, really. Um, Bobby Montano, Derek Albin, and Stephen Tidings, who wrote for River Ave Blues, um, who decided to that they wanted to keep that tradition alive and start their own site. And um, I saw Bobby at a Yankees game, actually, and he, and he told me about this idea, and he asked me if I wanted to be a part of it. Um, I guess at that point, uh, my voice on Twitter or Yankees Twitter um, started becoming a little bit more prominent. I, I guess people started paying more attention to my rants. Um, and uh, Bobby asked me to be a part of it, and I was really excited to do it. And then um, I've been a part of it ever since. Well, I can tell you that I am not a Yankee fan. I didn't grow up a Yankee fan, but I am from New Jersey, and my mm-hmm. grandfather was a Yankee fan. So he took me to so many games in like 1991 where, I don't know, Alvaro Ooh. Espinoza yeah. was, <laughs> was playing shortstop. Yeah. Uh, you know, uh, Scott Kamenicki and Andy Hawkins and all those guys. And um, I I remember those days. Now, from, from what I've gathered from you just on Twitter, you're an intelligent baseball fan to be sure, but the... The two Yankee players I feel like you have the strongest opinions about are <laughs> Gary Sanchez, and I, I think you like him more than most people do, and yeah. Tyler Wade, who I feel like you dislike more than maybe anybody who's ever lived. Yes, <laughs> yes. I will uh I will take the title for both of those things. Yes. Um <laughs> I love Gary. Um I know that he is not a popular Yankee for, for many reasons, and I just yeah, I'm not a fan of Tyler Wade. <laughs> I'm not. I will never be the president of the Tyler Wade uh, fan club. Looking at looking at the the postseason standings now, um, it's kind of hard to believe, but like it's lining up almost as like a lock that the Twins and Yankees are going to play in yep. the first round of the playoffs again. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> which is just like they just can't avoid each other. I'm sure the Twins just can't play. Like what it's. I mean, why do you think? Is there like a theory in like the in and like in Yankees Twitter or Yankee fandom of like this the the total ownership of the Twins? It just defies it defies like logic that because it, it goes back like fifteen years. Yeah, I I don't know I don't know why it is. For me, I don't think the Twins ever had um, enough pitching to deal with the Yankees lineup, and it, it feels like that's always been there. Achilles heel, even when they're not playing the Yankees, like there, there are some years where they've had like really good lineups, but the pitching doesn't match, match up or, or vice versa. And I think like during the early two thousands, they had Johan. Um, and then there was like a drop off in their rotation. So it was always like, even if you lost the Johan, you felt pretty confident that they could beat the rest of the twins rotation. It was just don't see Santana for a second time if possible. And I feel like that's always been the case. Like even last year, there wasn't 
there was even with Barrios. I know Barrios is a great pitcher, but there was never really a a guy on their staff who I felt like okay, they can they can shut this this Yankees team down and you know, we don't want to see that guy for game 1 or game 5 or game 7. Um it, it seems like they always had a a pitching staff and and really a a bullpen and starting rotation where there weren't too many concerns like I was never scared of Joe Nathan. Like there was the big home run that A Rod hit off of him in '09, and um, last year there there definitely wasn't anybody that I, I don't you know any Yankees fan was particularly concerned about. You know, especially when you compare it to the Astros rotation of last year. So I think it was always just the Yankees had a stacked lineup and they just matched up well with the the Twins pitching staff. And I don't think anything has changed. I mean, I I think if you ask a Twins fan they would always say that they just needed a better rotation, a deeper rotation. Um, and it, it seems like that's always been an, an issue for them uh, throughout the years. Randy, are you confident in this team going into the postseason? I know a lot of that is wrapped up into who's healthy and who's actually going to be there. But it seems like there have been points where I thought this was the best team in baseball. And there were points where it seems like they forgot to play baseball. And yeah. maybe the answer's in the middle. Um, I am confident. I'm confident in the players, but if we're being totally honest, I'm not totally confident in Aaron Boone. And you can always have a a conversation about how important or influential is a manager in um, game-to-game situations and, and what is the true measurement of their impact. But I, I do think that the spotlight is on managers in the playoffs a little bit more. And this real rough stretch of 20 games that they – thankfully seem to have um, survived. I was concerned with the way in which Aaron Boone handled their adversity. Um, I don't think that he created enough urgency with his lineup decisions. And um, even when he was talking to the press, I, I, I didn't feel confidence from him, um, which made me a little concerned. But with them rounding into shape now, and um, the biggest issue for me was they had lost their power for a while. Um, Outside of Luke Voigt, they weren't really driving the ball. They weren't getting extra extra base hits. They weren't hitting home runs, and that seems to have been corrected now. So, yeah, I, I feel confident in them again. Um, Davey Garcia has made a huge impact on them, I believe. Um, so now there's a third pitcher for the for the playoffs that, even though he's only had a couple starts, he, he, he has a presence about him that I think will help him in, in not being overwhelmed by the moment. So, yeah, I, I, I feel confident in them again. Um, I never lost full confidence in them because I didn't think that they were truly as bad as they looked. Um, but yeah, I, I feel good about them now. Randy, last question uh, before we let you go. Obviously, you're a pretty accomplished filmmaker. What What is next? What's the next thing we can see from you? Uh, I'm doing some projects for uh, Apple Plus um, that should premiere uh, next year. Um, so there's some, some TV work there. And then um, there's a big project that... I'm in negotiations with right now. I can't say it yet um, because it's not official, but um, I do think it will be of interest to uh, many baseball fans. So yeah, as soon as I can get the green light to announce it, I definitely will. But um, yeah, I think it's a, it's going to be a great project and I'm very excited to be a part of it. Well, that's great. You can, uh, everybody can find Randy on Twitter at Pam Sun, P-A-M-S-S-O-N. Uh, Randy Wilkins is a filmmaker, he is a baseball writer and blogger, and he has been our guest on the show. We will be back in just a minute where Matt and I will each discover a guy.
Welcome back to the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Our thanks to Randy Wilkins. Matt and I are going to finish up by each discovering a guy. That's one fascinating player you've never heard of. Mine is Mike Myers. No, not the Canadian actor, not the horror movie villain. Mike Myers, M-A-Y-E-R-S, who is a pitcher for the Angels. And Mike Myers has a 214 ERA and a 31 to 4 strikeout to walk ratio. Now he's a reliever. And it feels like pretty much any reliever can pile up numbers like that in just 21 innings. But I'm going to tell you why I find him so interesting. I'd sort of forgotten until I looked into him that I do remember watching his major league debut because it was an absolute train wreck. In 2016, he started for the Cardinals on Sunday night baseball against the Dodgers. He lasted for four outs, an inning and a third, nine earned runs. And this part was true at the time. I don't know if it's still true. Um, Per the Elias Sportsboro, I guess it is still true. He is the first major leaguer to surrender at least nine runs while advancing through fewer than two innings in his debut. That was his first and only major league start. I cannot imagine he gets another. Anyway, bounced up and down over parts of four years with the Cardinals, 7.03 ERA in 80 innings, just like a guy. Um, actually got DFA'd last August, unclaimed, extremely a guy. Picked up by the Angels on waivers in December, and now he's having a really good year. But fine, still, lots of relievers can do that over a short sample. Here is what made him interesting to me. He's got a new cutter. Last year, he was 90% four-seam and slider, 50% fastball, 40% slider. This year, uh, it's it's 35% fastball, 30% slider, 25% new cutter. The cutter has been thrown 88 times. It has allowed only four hits. None of that is the interesting part. This is the interesting part. I read this. From Jeff Fletcher, who is an Angels beat writer in the Orange County Register the other day, and I'm quoting from Jeff here, Angels reliever Mike Myers discovered what may have been the turning point of his career, of all places, on Instagram. Last winter, amid the coverage of Roy Halladay's candidacy and eventual election to the Hall of Fame, Myers found the story of how Mariano Rivera showed Halladay the grip for his cutter. And as Jeff goes on to explain, Myers saw the photo on Instagram and basically tried to copy the grip, and that's how he changed his career around. This is not the first time we've heard a story like this. I think just last week, we talked about how A's reliever Jake Diekman saw Chaz Rose slider clip grip on Twitter from Pitching Ninja and tried to copy it, and it worked, and now we've got more than one major leaguer just finding ways to change their lives on social media. Social media, generally bad, but in this case, it's helping these guys (laughs) be much better pitchers, and I find that incredibly fascinating. Wasn't there also like a, a soft tossing lefty reliever named Mike Myers, but yes. spelled M Y E R? A Tigers guy. I didn't have time to look him up, but I do remember having like a million of his 1997 tops cards. <laughs> My let's discover a guy is Tony Gonsolin, who comes with a bit of a higher profile. Um, he's a right-handed pitcher for the Los Angeles Dodgers. Um, entered the season as their number six overall prospect um, via MLB Pipeline. The thing about him though is, despite the fact that he's ranked, it was their sixth prospect. The Dodgers have had so many high-profile young players debut in the last few years that like he definitely was not in that conversation he felt like more like oh like okay he's just like a solid um prospect but he's been really good both this year and last year and kind of you know modified seasons um for now this year he's um he's uh after shutting down the Padres on Tuesday night uh seven innings pitched one run allowed although only two strikeouts but zero walks um over two years he has a 2.26 2.26 ERA over 75 innings. And I find him interesting because, you know, we alluded to this earlier. Walker Bueller has a blister issue and 
Gonsolin might end up being a critical part of the Dodgers rotation in the postseason. And so it's something like this guy, this star-studded team that you have, and suddenly this kind of, you know, under-the-radar pitcher who's been really good in a small sample um, could be on the spot pitching, like, you know, starting a key game for the Dodgers um, next month. He was a a ninth-round pick in 2016 out of St. Mary's College. Actually, college teammates with another breakout pitcher from this year, uh, Corbin Burns of the of the Brewers, but they were both fourth round picks. Uh, they were both drafted in 2016. Burns a fourth round pick. Um, and they got constant. What I find interesting about him when and looking deeper is that like, he's a bit atypical. He relies on a splitter a lot and he has a high four seam, high spin rate on his four seam fastball, but doesn't get a lot of strikeouts by, by the standard of a modern pitcher. He's not someone who's, you know, racking up strikeouts, but doesn't really walk anyone either. So that's kind of the trade off. Um, you get with him. Mike, you you follow the Dodgers fairly closely. What's your take on Gonsolin? I know that he's a crazy cat person. I know that every Saturday during his rookie season, he wore a different cat shirt, and he is as well known as being a cat fan as he is a baseball player, which I, uh, I have to respect that that's that's amazing. Um, yeah, he was a two-way player in college. He, was, he had interest from a lot of teams as being an outfielder, and I don't believe he was a full-time pitcher until maybe he got to the, the pros. And despite that, he's actually uh, gone through the big leagues pretty quickly. And you're right. They need him now, because if you look at the starting rotation, you know, they obviously lost a, a lot of guys over the winter. They traded Kenta Maeda. Uh, Rich Hill is gone. Hyunjin Ryu is gone. You know, Bueller has the blister issue. As you said, David Price chose not to participate in the season. And for a while, it seemed like, wow, this is crazy depth. If you remember, Dustin May only got to start an opening day because Kershaw was injured. Like you can just pull Dustin May out of nowhere. And now it turns out like their fourth-ish starter in the postseason. It's going to be some kind of, you know, fire-breathing combination of May and Gonsolin. And um, that's a nice problem to have. I can think of a lot of teams who would like to have that. We are going to finish off with our purpose pitch, our closing rant. Uh, here's a stat that gets tossed around a lot. Here are the ranks of the last few World Series winners in batting strikeout percentage, right? So last year, the Nationals were the fourth lowest, the so fourth best. The year before that, the Red Sox were third best. The year before that, Houston was first best. Don't overthink that too much. The year before that, uh, the Cubs were 14th. Okay, that's an outlier. And the Royals were first. I've heard that a lot. You mean this is lowest strikeout rate by yes. batting? By, by lowest, hitters. meaning okay. best, uh, fewest. And I hear that a lot on broadcasts as evidence that you must make a ton of contact to win. And I find that to be false and untrue here's another stat from those same years last year pittsburgh had the second lowest strikeout rate they were terrible two years ago it was cleveland we've been talking about how cleveland hasn't had a good hitting outfielder since like 1974 uh the year before that atlanta was third lowest they also slugged 412 and had 90 losses you get the idea now let's look just at this year if you look at the top 10 hitting teams in terms of lowest strikeout rate the teams that strike out the fewest five of those teams are probably not going to make a version of the playoffs where everybody makes the playoffs, the nationals, the diamondbacks, the Mets, the angels, and the giants. Um, the giants are actually hitting pretty well. So fine. But those other teams really aren't hitting that much. That's not true. The Mets have been great, but Arizona cannot hit. You get the idea. Those teams are making a lot of contact. They're not going to make the playoffs. And what I prefer to look at is barrels. We talked about this a lot last week. A barrel is the perfect combination of exit velocity and launch angle. It's what you want. If you were to look at the 10 best barrel percentage hitting teams, the 10 teams that do it the most, only two of those 10 are going to miss the playoffs. And that might only be one if Cincinnati can get that one game out. So um, I argue that anytime you hear someone saying 
if you don't finish like first or second and lowest strikeout rate, you can't win. That is false. It's not about making lots of contact. It's about making strong contact. Boo, strikeout rate. Yay, barrel rate. That's my rant. That's a good one. Uh, my, my my closing purpose pitch is regarding um, the expanded playoffs. Uh, baseball Twitter blew up on Tuesday night because of a quote from Commissioner Manfred um, where you're speaking to, I think, Hofstra Business School. And he basically said that, like, yes, he thinks that there's a chance that the expanded playoffs will continue to next year. Um, and, you know, baseball Twitter, at least the people I follow, were kind of freaking out about this, saying, like, this is a travesty. This will ruin the game. It'll devalue the regular season. And all I ask, all I ask of baseball fans, I'm not saying you have to like where this ends or, dis, you know, I'm not saying you have to like it. There's a good chance you'll dislike it. I just ask people before you freak out about it to just wait. Just wait to see if there is a change to the playoffs. Wait to see what it actually ends up being. Because, you know, it could be a system. Who knows? And I say this with absolutely no inside information. Like, it could be a system that ends up in, um, placing, placing an even greater incentive on finishing first. Maybe it is. Maybe it is 16 teams make the playoffs, but like, you know, the bottom eight are in some sort of like, have to like basically play in first, right? Where like basically, yeah, you kind of get a chance at the trophy, but you have to play in and you like sort of like weigh yourself out in some like crazy like three-day tournament that really like puts you at a huge disadvantage against the team that, that finished in first place. I don't know. I do know that a lot of thought goes into these things and you know, just because the, the games change and it doesn't necessarily mean that the way things have been is the best way for them to be going forward. And I just would appreciate people reserving judgment until they actually see where things finish. I am down with change. I have enjoyed most of the changes this year. The NLDH is fine. Um, I have liked the extra innings rule a whole lot more than I thought I would. I was, I've always liked the three batter minimum. I like the changes. I really don't like this one. It, I have a lot of I I wish I cared more about if the Dodgers were winning the NL West right now. And I don't. That's that's my concern. I think you're right. But that's it's a wait that, and that's, see. That's sure. I, I really don't like this one. But that's my point. People are just assuming it's going to be exactly what it is this year, which is just like 16 teams. It doesn't really matter if you're first or eighth in your league. And my guess would be that it's not like even if they did explain to 16 teams in the playoffs permanently, I don't think it would be. That's that. fair. I think there would be some mechanism to incentivize finishing in first that, place. that is fair. I could be wrong I could I could be wrong about that but I think that like people that's what I'm that's what I'm saying I think people need to like wait and see how this all plays out because I do not think it will end up being that I could be wrong that is as but, it stands I don't like it but I'm willing to reserve judgment until I see if there is some slightly different version of it but personally I I liked it better the way it used to be uh, mostly I like that we have baseball this year we've actually almost made it through an entire regular season and we're gonna get playoff baseball soon that is very likely what we'll be talking about next week. This is the MLB.com Ballpark Dimensions podcast. Thank you for listening. Okay, picture this. It's Friday afternoon when a thought hits you. I can waste another weekend doing the same old whatever or I can conquer it. I can hop into my all-new Hyundai Santa Fe and hit the road. Any road. The steeper, the better. Because my all-new Santa Fe is available with H-Track all-wheel drive, so I can hit the trail without a worry in the world. Heck, with three rows and best-in-class rear cargo space, I can pack the whole family in with all our gear. We've got available dual wireless charging for our phones, so we'll never lose touch with civilization, and we won't lose touch with the primordial power of Mother Earth. So which is it? Waste the weekend 
or do something a little more epic and conquer it in the all-new Hyundai Santa Fe. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. 